From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And this morning, we talk with author and speaker on climate change politics, Michael Gunter, about his new book, Climate Travels, How Ecotourism Changes Mindsets and Motivates Action. Gunter takes readers around the states to provide a greater understanding of the many facets of the climate crisis. In his writings, he argues that conscientious travel broadens understanding of climate change and makes its dangers concrete and immediate. Drawing on interviews with government officials and industry leaders, Gunter emphasizes the correlation between direct personal experience and environmental justice. And first, we are going to replay one of our favorite interviews, and that's with Noah Whiteman. And it's on his book, Most Delicious Poison, the story of nature's toxins from spices to vices. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Joining us in the first part of the show is Noah Whiteman. He is a professor of genetics, genomics, uh, evolution and development at Cal Berkeley, yay, and uh, he's here to uh, talk about his new book, Most Delicious Poison, From Spices to Vices, The Story of Nature's Toxins. Dr. Whiteman, thank you so much for joining the, us this morning on This Green Earth. Uh, thank you so much for having me join you. It's, it's my pleasure to be beaming in from Berkeley, go Bears. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I used to live in Berkeley. Yeah, love the place. So let's start here. We always like to start with some definition of terms. And I thought the first one would be, give us a definition of what an evolutionary biologist is and what you do. Wow, that's a great question. (laughs) And maybe one of my favorite ones to answer. Good. (laughs) So my job is to try to understand uh, where we come from and sort of a capital W we that means all of life on earth uh, how it arose and then diversified through time and eventually led to us and human consciousness and my particular specialty is is an attempt to understand how interactions between species have sort of driven that diversification process like a dynamo so that it resulted in probably you know the most diverse life forms uh, that we've ever known, which would include things like plants and the animals that eat them. Okay, so yes, yeah, so so you just said plants and animals that eat them, or um, animals that eat plants and <laughs> and plants that uh, defend themselves and uh, develop defenses in one way. And one defense mechanism, let's say just for plants, is to I guess, uh, evolve over time by developing a certain chemistry within themselves to protect themselves. That's right. And they're incredibly good at this. And one reason is that they have this thing called the chloroplast, which enables them to sort of do a set of molecular uh, biochemical reactions in a particular way that sort of is, is I would say, more um, elaborate than our own ability to do that. Uh, but yet again, some small animals even do the same thing. So mm-hmm. it's not completely restricted to plants. And of course, bacteria, mushrooms, they do it too. So a lot of organisms have the ability to create uh, complex chemicals that serve no other purpose for the organism except to defend themselves against enemies. 
Okay. And plants, because they can't move, <laughs> uh, they're sort of sitting ducks in a way, except really they're, it's worse than ducks because they can't swim, dive, or fly. They can't get so away. Right. They can't get away. So, uh, and they're modular. So, you know, they're sitting there. They have these leaves, things like that. They have roots. They have fruits. They have flowers, depending on the, the species. And those are all really expensive tissues to kind of keep operating. And they're very vulnerable to attack. Okay, so for example, poison ivy, let's say. Did po poison ivy didn't necessarily start out as poison ivy. Maybe it just started out as ivy, and then over time, I don't, I don't dare I give it, you know, the, the, the ivy some sense of consciousness. It develops, it somehow evolves to develop a chemical protection system. Yes, that's right. And so um, that's an example of a chemical urushiol that, that's on the, so a, sort of a wax that's on the surface of um, poison ivy, poison oak, and other members of the Anacardiaceae. Um, and uh, those plants, you know, we actually don't know the function of urushiol. That's an interesting example. So we don't have all the answers. Um, but an exa another example would be for uh, something like uh, mustard oils that are in wasabi. Um, you know, the, the wasabi plant makes those. And yes, the idea is that um, those chemicals actually can hurt the wasabi plant. So they store them in a way that is sort of like a protoxin or not quite toxic. But if the root or, or in that case, the rhizome of the wasabi is damaged, say, by a hungry beetle, um, there will form this toxin as a result of that protoxin being triggered, sort of like a, um, you know, sort of like a fuse being lit. And um, if you think about that, it's very hard to find another argument for explaining why wasabi would make that chemical. And, you know, instead of converting that energy into seeds directly, right? Mm -hmm. So we've had to explain the appearance of all these diverse chemicals from things like the wasabi and mustard oil to the capsaicin you mentioned, to THC in marijuana, to caffeine in coffee beans. You know, why would it, why would these organisms make this stuff? Yeah. And yeah, the answer seems to be to largely to protect themselves from enemies. Okay, so so they can protect themselves, but I guess other pl plants, and maybe even the same plants, can also develop a, a set of chemicals as an attractant. Well, what happens is, yes, you're right. So those same chemicals that initially serve as 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 chemical shield, they work well for a while. But nature finds a way. <laughs> mm. And specialized, uh, often insects, but other organisms as well, things like bacteria, fungi, other pathogens, they have all the ability to, to overcome those toxins. And that process has probably led to the most diverse uh, life forms that we know of, which are the insects. Um, and so most, around half of insects are herbivorous which means they feed on living plants and that is a hard thing to do and so there are certain trade-offs um, in doing so and it turns out that specialization on particular toxins um, is a thing so this is the counter response in the insects that has led to their diversity at some level we think and for an, an example of that is the monarch butterfly you know the the toxins in the milkweeds uh, protect those plants from most insects, but there are some insects that have pierced the shield, and the monarch is an example of that. And not only that, as you said, they use the toxins as attractants, so they turn the tables on the plants. 
And because you know each plant group is sort of making its own kind of toxin, the toxins turn out to reveal the identity of the plant. And so if you're a butterfly, you're like, hmm, that's my host plant <laughs> because it's making that chemical and I've evolved the ability to overcome it. It's the perfect signpost to use to find that plant. If say the chemical is emanating in the air as a volatile, or even if the butterfly lands in the leaf, they can taste with their feet so they can sense the chemicals that are on the leaf hmm. just from touching it, which is kind of amazing. So there's, in some ways, I, I visualize this botanical arms race that gets set up, <laughs> that, that a plant yes. develops a protective uh, set of chemicals and then uh, an animal or so, an insect develops a way to combat that and, and so on and so forth. That's right, and that metaphor has been used to describe this ancient arms race between plants and insects. And we can trace that over deep time across the last 400 million years, which is about how old land plants and insects are. And from the very beginning, you can see damage from arthropods on the, the earliest uh, land plants. And then in the plants, you can even see things like these oil body cells in mosses that contain these terpenoids that modern mosses also make and they use them to defend themselves against insects. So over time, as plants evolved, they continued to evolve these more and more elaborate uh, chemical arsenals. And then the insects are sort of under a lot of evolutionary pressure to overcome that because once they do, there's sort of a buffet waiting for them, right? And so this idea of an arms race is exactly um, how some evolutionary biologists think of it. Others think of it more like trench warfare, where mm. you know there is this um, continual arms race, but there's patchy, ephemeral, tit for tats going on. And my guess is both are important in explaining all of this chemical diversity. So as you're going through this research, was there anything that caught you um, or surprised you, uh, especially maybe bringing in the human element of it? You know, because as I'm looking through your list, and you're talking about attractants. For me, caffeine is an attractant, um, but you list it on here as being um, one of the poisonous ones. So I kind of want to walk through some of the human-related um, instances with these plants. Yes, I guess. So one of the surprising things, you know, I sort of knew that caffeine uh, had been reported to be a, basically a natural insecticide, another one of these chemical defenses. Mm. And most people don't know this. Um, and if you think about it, what we're saying here is that the evidence suggests that the many different times that plants have evolved to make caffeine, so it's evolved a number of times independently across the tree of plant life, that uh, when it has, it seems to be used by the plants as a way to defend themselves against enemies on the one hand. There's also evidence though that some plants like citrus uh, will put caffeine in nectar. Yes, citrus plants make caffeine and uh, they put it in the nectar and the idea is that pollinating insects um, are being manipulated by that caffeine, just like you know we use it, right? My, I, I think anyway that I'm a, a more interesting, lively person who can has a better memory when I'm on caffeine. Mm -hmm. Well, the plants may be doing that to manipulate pollinators to be better pollinators, sometimes at the expense of the pollinator. So that's an example of caffeine, sort of you know not just being used to defend plants, but or a chemical being used to defend plants, but also being used to maybe even attract them, just like you said. So that's one surprising thing that the same chemical can sort of, you know, depending on the target or depending on what the plant is doing with it, can cause 
you know, different behaviors, repulsion or attraction. I'm still trying to understand um, the evolutionary aspect of, of this in the sense like going back to say the plants that you say may develop, started developing terpenoids. Um, is there a way to, to understand at what point the, you know, a plant doesn't consciously say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try to design a, maybe a terpenoid. Let's try this one, you know, and it fails. And then let's try this type of terpenoid or, you know, this type of... The, I, I'm still trying to understand how plants even figure out that sure. this is a path to survival. Well, like most kinds of adaptations, many of these defensive chemicals actually served a different function or mm. they continue to serve the more ancestral function in addition to their being used as a toxin by the plants by evolution and for example some chemicals probably evolve first as signaling molecules so serving some housekeeping purpose right communication within or between cells sort of make the body go and then evolution sort of taps into them because maybe one individual made slightly more of that and put it in a particular tissue through some mutation and in some cases, we know where and how these plants have evolved, the ability to synthesize things like caffeine, that pathway has been worked out. And you can imagine that there's a process of mutation that occurs of, you know, where there's sometimes existing genes get duplicated and those take on a new role mm. in an enzymatic pathway, say. And that might result in more of the substance being produced or a different version of it because sometimes a single bond can turn a chemical from not toxic to toxic, right. right? So the tweaking that happens at the biochemical level, it's this trial and error kind of process that is built on the substrate of evolution that's occurred before. So, you know, brand new genes, I would say, that don't come from pre-existing genes through gene duplication, that's pretty rare in terms of how we understand the origin of this chemistry. So imagine these these biochemical pathways that already exist and you know pushing them in one direction or another or a slightly new one is actually not that hard um, especially if you're already making these kinds of chemicals like many of these organisms do including us ah perfect segue yes Noah because that was my next question my curiosity about do humans and have humans over time developed their own sets of toxins? I'm sure the answer is yes. Uh, or well, chemical defense systems in some form. Well, what I would say to that is we're far more like the monarch, which doesn't make its own toxins, but has, has evolved in a remarkable capacity to pull them out of those milkweed plants and the prairies of, say, Minnesota, and you know put them in the bodies of the caterpillars, right? And then the adults fly with those chemicals all the way down to Michoacan, Mexico to overwinter, where they protect the butterflies from birds, most anyway. And we're much the same way, except we're culturally evolving the use of these chemicals over and over and over. Every human society that has ever existed, my guess is they're doing exactly what we're doing, maybe at a different level, but using chemicals from nature produced by other organisms to make their lives better and better in many different ways, right? But that's a knife's edge. And just like sometimes some monarchs are overcome by their host plants toxins, so are we, mm. right? And you know, my father who died of alcohol use disorder is an example of that. So the yeast that make that ethanol, they're not making it for us, although we've selected slightly more efficient varieties and things like that. But yeast were making ethanol before there were any people around, right? There were no people when the first yeast evolved to make ethanol. 
And so they're doing it for their own purposes. We're co-opting that. But in some ways, the yeast were making lots of ethanol to keep other microbes at bay and sort of have this private reserve of energy that they're able to use later. So it's kind of this amazing toxin. And, you know, humans have sort of used it in the same way, right? We're putting um, alcohol in water to make alcohol more potable. We are using it um, to make uh, our psychological enemies go away. Mm -hmm. But the problem is a little bit too much use and it becomes a toxin, right? Both physical and sort of psychological. Well, we could talk about this for a very, and very, I very have long a, time. We have a couple more questions yes. left, but this is, is very fascinating. Chris, you have uh, another? Yeah, I, just, a, just a couple more minutes. Um, let's talk about climate change. Is there any relationship between a warming planet and the work you do as an evolutionary biologist and what you might be seeing in, the, in ecosystems uh, uh, with respect to climate change? Yes, and you know it's interesting just in terms of surprises as I was writing the book, I didn't necessarily expect to end up in the book where I did. Um, and so the, the sort of end of the arc of the book, the last chapter, um, does talk about the fact that the vast majority um, say of anti-cancer drugs actually come from plants mm -hmm. and many of those come from the tropics. So the area between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn, and that is where the war of nature, as Darwin described it, borrowing a phrase from de Candolle, um, rages the strongest between species. And it's there that these chemicals, you know, many of them are forged in, the, in these ancient battles. And of course, climate change is affecting uh, these regions dramatically, as we've seen. I saw a picture yesterday of a tributary of the Amazon that is dried up, you know, mm -hmm. and so, what, what I'm seeing is that uh, that we're in a period of rapid uh, change, and that is going to uh, result in rapid evolutionary change too, and that includes extinction. So my uh, colleagues and I are concerned, very concerned, um, that the rate of extinction, particularly uh, of things like insects, for example, right, um, is being hastened by climate change and by a warming planet, which is causing uh, droughts, uh, things like that. And that, of course, is ultimately going to affect the diversity of life, right? And that right. means also the diversity of chemicals. So as I say, whether there's a, you know, garden, uh, a poison garden that, that, our, that our descendants inherit that is as rich as the one that we've had is an, is an open question right now. And so, but the good thing is there's still a lot of time that we have to fix it. I shouldn't say a lot of time. There's a lot of potential in a short period of time to right. fix it, um, especially that part. So there, there, there are these sort of intertwined things, the habitat destruction, the conversion of natural lands to croplands, um, and climate change are sort of intertwined, right? The fates are now intertwined of those two things, and they're, they're sort of um, catalysts, one for the other. And that is something else that, that uh, I talk about in the book a little bit. And so my concern as someone who studies evolution is that uh, more and more and more of the world, right, is being uh, reduced, the natural world is being reduced in its footprint. And that, that is concerning. At the same time, indigenous and local peoples, um, they, their lands actually contain over half of the global biodiversity, um, probably about half of the carbon sequestration potential. 
So we need to think very hard about protecting indigenous people, their cultures, their lands for their own sake. Um, and if we do that, if we focus on that, we will do a lot in general for the world to better the world. So that is kind of where I ended up in the book, that the protection of indigenous people, culture, and their lands and their rights is critical for the survival of the planet hmm. as we know it. And the name of the book is Most Delicious Poison, From Spices to Vices, The Story of Nature's Toxins. Noah Whiteman is the author, and he's a professor of genetics, genomics, evolution, and development at Cal Berkeley. Noah, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. We have so many more questions. We'll have to have you back on the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. We're very excited about our second guest today. We will be talking with Michael Gunter Jr. And he has a new book. It's called Climate Travels, How Ecotourism Changes Mindsets and Motivates Action. Michael, thank you for joining us today on This Green Earth. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Claire. Absolutely. Now, Michael, from what I understand, this is your third book, and all your books have covered environmental topics. So could we first set the stage for how your latest book, Climate Travels, came to be? And can you talk about your path from your first book and that trajectory to this most recent work? Sure. Um, happy to. And, and th thanks again for having me. Um, my, my first book was about uh, species protection and um, specifically um, strategies that environmental um, interest groups used in, um, in tackling um, that issue. And it was called Building the Next Ark. And as I was um, finishing that up, um, like all of us, um, I was being inundated with the issue of climate change. And I um, I decided that I, I wanted to tackle that myself and, and really what was um, most um, frustrating me from the, the political um, side of the house was the way in which the United States was an outlier in terms of um, the general public's understanding of what climate change really is. And so the, the second book, um, Tales of an Ecotourist, um, looked expressly at five core misunderstandings that um, that surround climate change. It looks at the the science of it, the politics of it, the economics of it, and social and cultural misunderstandings. Um, but the catch is um, just to piggyback on what what um, you guys were just talking about is it uses the lens of travel as um, sort of a window into those misunderstandings. So that um, previous um, book, that second book, it goes around the globe and uses high profile tourist destinations as sort of a jumping off point to talk about those misunderstandings. And then as I was finishing up that book, I realized I, I really wanted to concentrate on, um, on the United States in the next project, but specifically on um, an outline of what the, the threats we face here in the US are, and then pair that with um, solutions that are already underway and, and, and making a difference. And so that's what this, this most recent book that came out um, in 2023, uh, Climate Travels is about. It's um, half 
here's the threats we face in the U.S., and here's the solutions that, that we are employing and need to um, scale up even further. And it, it kind of crisscrosses um, the country um, from Florida, where I am, to Maine, to Alaska, to California, um, Oregon, Texas, Kansas, te um, Tennessee, um, Virginia. It covers a, a lot of different um, areas, a lot of different issues. And the, and the heart of it is that, um, you know, kind of borrowing from Malcolm Gladwell, that uh, we haven't been able to move the needle enough politically in the United States when it comes to climate change. Yes, 61% of Americans recognize climate change as a problem, but only 43% of Americans think it affects them personally. Um, those numbers have been um, edging up over the last dozen years, but it's still not um, sufficient to put the pressure on um, national politicians to to um, implement the policies needed. And so uh, what this work does is sort of borrows from um, John Dewey, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, modern day um, uh, sort of travel gurus like Rick Steves, another name that, that I'm sure your readers are famous with, Mark Twain, mm -hmm. and borrowing, mm -hmm. borrowing from the power of travel and and as I mentioned before, um, Malcolm Gladwell's idea about tipping points that where we're getting our information on climate change hasn't been sufficient. And so let, why not cut out the middlemen? Let's push um, basic um, understanding amongst individuals themselves. And so that, that's, that's the uh, sort of the organizing um, concept of, of the book that that uh, we build from the ground up when it comes to climate change. You, you said something interesting. Um, you said you learned that the U.S. or Americans are kind of an outlier when it comes to understanding and, um, you know, um, uh, I don't know if accepting or uh, having climate change resonate amongst Americans compared to, say, other parts of the world. Can you... Talk a little more about that. What did what did you see the differences are? Yeah, um, that's a, a good question. It, it is. It's it's amazing to look at that. There are a few other um, states that you know we're in in that category with um, Russia, mm. um, Australia, Australia. Um, but interesting. Yeah, I think part of what's going on in Australia is a very strong coal lobby. Right. Um, and. Also, sort of similar to the United States, a very um, large country um, with sort of that rugged individualism mm -hmm. attitude, and and you know keep government out of my my business. Mm. Um, you know, there's been a fair amount of work, and and rightfully so, in the United States that talks about the vested interest, right? The um, the role of Exxon um, and um, the role of the Coke. Um, brothers in in producing literature that that shows that climate change uh, erroneously um, is not an issue or is not a problem or maybe actually something that we should welcome, and you know that that's very true that there are um, vested interests. The fossil fuel industry, oil and coal in particular, have gone to great lengths um, to confuse the American public. 
but I think um, as you as you perked your um, ears and your voice there when I mentioned mentioned Australia, I think something similar that's going on here is and that has been um, left out um, in a lot of the general discussion is the sort of the ideological piece to this, and that is that um, the reason the industry, the fossil fuel industry has been so effective in this is that um, they've emphasized the role of government and regulation. And so to borrow uh, from a few analogies here, I think um, there's significant segments of the American public that see climate change as a Trojan horse. Ah. And there's a bunch of environmentalists waiting inside that Trojan horse and they're going to jump out in the middle of the night and bring all sorts of other regulations with them. Mm. Um, another analogy that's sometimes used is that, you know, environmentalists are, are watermelons. They're, they're green on the outside, but they're, they're right. socialist red on the inside. And that climate change, because it's such a complex and big problem, it requires um, national and international um, coordination that really infringes on on basic um, individual decisions, and and I think they've this very powerful ways in which that has has sort of tapped into American politics. Right, right. And when you talk about individual decisions, and you think about the tourist industry and people going to these different places, I would say that you would argue that when you get there, you kind of see firsthand what is happening. And like our tourists just saw, we didn't have any snow in our mountains. This just happened for our Christmas holiday. So what do you think some of the things in the moment that you maybe can do to be a better steward to the environment while you're in this place, but also what you take with you when you go home and how do you act from there forward? Exactly. You know, any kind of travel has its own carbon footprint. So this is, this is not without its own um, complications. But I think um, the famous um, environmental author and activist Bill McKibben said it best, you know, make your travel count. And so what you do afterwards, yes, exactly, Claire, you, 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 you phrased it very well. You know, how you travel, um, what you do during your travel is very important. But I think the kicker is what you do afterwards. Like, are you going to, is this, you know, just, fun or is are you is this true ecotourism where you're um, letting your money help the local community as you travel and then going back home and drawing from that kind of like you know Mark Twain said you know a, a century two centuries now ago um, that um, travel is is what really opens our eyes and I'm just paraphrasing in my own words here um, but travel is what opens our eyes to what we're doing well at home and what we need to do better um, yes it's great to learn about new places see new things taste new things um, meet new people and that's that's an amazing experience but really um, what makes us um, learn is how we apply that um, travel once we return home. And I, I, I've argued that
that, for example, um, one thing that I, I think um, Americans can see if they go to certain places um, around our country is the pleasure and um, economic benefit and lifestyle um, pluses to um, public transit. A lot of American um, cities don't have viable um, public transit, but there are a few that do. And um, once once you experience that, um, you get a, a taste of how life could really be. And um, and then if you go home and advocate and join forces with other um, individuals and groups that are interested in that, um, changes can happen even in Central Florida here, the sort of the poster child for for sprawl. Right. Um, we're seeing changes happen um, when it comes to to transit. It's it's going too slow, um, but we we now have um, a commuter rail. We now have a, a high speed rail that goes all the way down to um, to Miami. It just opened in September, hmm. and um, and so I think um, these are products of people seeing that there are other ways to think and do things that we can adapt and adopt for ourselves. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that high speed rail because I lived in Orlando back in the early '80s through most of the '80s, um, and it was a conversation. But even back then. Uh, and that's how long, just yes. an example of how long uh, changes like that can take exactly. uh, get wend their way through the political labyrinth, et, et cetera, economics, uh, et cetera. But, but they eventually, uh, with political will, uh, I think you alluded to that earlier, things like that can happen. Hey, if, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Michael Gunter. He's a Cornell Distinguished Faculty Member and Arthur Vining Davis Fellow at Rollins College, political science professor at Rollins, which is in Winter Park, uh, Orlando, beautiful, beautiful town, which a lot of tourists, when they come to Orlando, Michael, like to visit Winter Park. Um, That's right. And, That's and so, right. And so, like, well, Park City. Lots of people like to visit Park City. And like you say, that... Um, Sometimes you can visit locations and, and uh, become environmentally mindful w with respect to how beautiful a setting is, and you, you want to protect that and conserve that. So there's, there's a couple of different ways you can look at the world that you visit, uh, in e either in terms of how beautiful it is, and it's like, we need to pr preserve this, or, wow, things are changing here, we need to do something about it. We do talk about how every action counts when it comes to daily practices and how we're being environmentally conscious. And we generally go after some of those low lifts, right? The ones that are a little bit easier to practice. But are we past that point now? And are we even as individuals called upon to look at greater actions? And if so, when you go to a place and you think about, okay, well, I want to protect winters, I want to protect these things, how do you remove kind of that daunting feeling to take those bigger steps? Yeah, that's that's a, a, another great question. I mean, the short answer to to your your series of questions would be yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> um, I think that um, one of the the issues that i i touch on in the book is this idea that climate change is so big and so scary um 
and 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 so beyond individual actions that people say people that care people that that are are, are committed um to the interdependence between our economy and, and our environment just kind of shut down and, and block it out and um and so there the, i i go through a, a series of, of discussions on that but i think the the gist of it is um we can take real um heart real real hope in the way in which um younger generations are approaching this and and borrow from them and that individual actions um can make a difference as you scale them up and and what i argue in this book is is that we need to start at the local level you me our our family and friends um and then build um that up um the climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe is also an author um has as um frequently said that the best thing we can do when it comes to climate change is talk about it and um there's there's so much that we have in common in this country but for the last 3 4 decades we've been emphasizing um too often the opposite what where our differences are um when you think about the legacy of environmentalism i mean what is conservation it's about um keeping things um relatively stable like they like they used to be um that's what conservatives that's what defines conservatism mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and the the origins of of environmentalism you can go back and you can look at a number of of different um republican presidents um you know one certainly to highlight would be theodore roosevelt and his role in helping you know working with a, a famous um liberal environmentalist john muir mm -hmm. in helping um establish what would become the national park system um you know a lot of the legislation that on the books today came in the early 1970s under president richard nixon um including the endangered species act you know he wasn't exactly an environmentalist right but he he was tapping into a public opinion and um i i would say that you know he probably recognized the connections to um economic health as well it doesn't have to be an either or when it comes to to the economy and the environment right. it can be both and in fact um for the the longer um trajectory it has to be both um you have to um have a healthy environment to have a long-term healthy um economy right and so getting back to your to your question claire i would say that um it's about identifying those common interests um across the political spectrum and i think that's why where travel can come in um and then um scaling that up and one of the the best examples that um i've come across is uh is distributed solar rooftop solar solar on on your on homes on residential homes um there was a group called the green tea party that worked with um in some conservative minds the great enemy of former vice president al gore um and a couple other um interesting 
mix of, of political spectrum folks um, to really push um, um, in, um, in Georgia and Florida these opportunities um, for um, rooftop solar. And, you know, when you think about it, it gets into all sorts of, of, uh, of political issues that transcend, um, you know, left versus right, or maybe even fall more into the sort of the right end of that spectrum. It's about independence, about um, producing your own power, um, saving money, um, you know, this idea of uh, something called net metering that right. um, allows um, an individual to produce their own power and sell excess power back or bank credits back to the utility company. Um, that's, that's very powerful when it comes to um, both um, left-leaning and right-leaning communities. Right. And I guess it's hard to see it as uh, divisive at all that we are trying to conserve these places, these natural areas, but also to be environmentally sound and have a future for the generations to come. And I think sometimes it does get overshadowed by other problems that are happening in our world, but it is a global right. issue and it is an issue for all of us. So if if someone wanted to learn more about your books and climate travels, where would they go? Oh, thank you. Um, I've got a web page. My uh, Good. agent and editor encouraged me to to join the 21st century. <laughs> so they can just go to um, Michael Gunter Jr. and it's just Jr. Um, dot com, and they can um, uh, read more about the the books and some of the the feedback and and places that I'll I'll be going to to talk about it. Um, there's also um, a link there to uh, to reach out and and contact me if if they'd like to. I um, I monitor my email daily, so um, be happy to to chat with folks um, more if they're interested. Great. The name of the book is Climate Travels, How Ecotourism Changes Mindsets and Motivates Action. Professor Michael Gunter is the author. Professor Gunter, thank you so much again for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. 